Hey everyone, welcome to Dig Deep. Well, today we are kicking off our brand new series, Transformed. And I love, love, love a good transformation. In my humble opinion, the greatest things on the internet are before and after photos of a great transformation. I can go on Pinterest and type in home transformation, kitchen transformation, living room transformation, and look at those before and after pictures all day long. There is something so fun and exciting about a total transformation. And I'm always so blown away by how the exact same room in the exact same house can look completely different after a renovation or makeover. The bones of the house are essentially the same, but the rooms feel bigger, they're brighter, they're more welcoming and cozy and just beautiful. This semester, we are studying, as you know, Romans 12. And in many ways, Romans 12 is a beautiful after picture of our lives when we've been transformed by Jesus. And so I am excited to see what God wants to do in our lives. I believe that there are walls that he wants to break down. I believe there's rooms that he wants to brighten and whole sections of living space that he wants to make more warm and inviting, maybe for the first time in a really long time. So today, as we kick off this series, we are going to get right to the heart of what makes that kind of transformation in our lives possible. So if you have your Bibles or if you have your Romans 12 sheet, you can pull it out. We're going to start reading in verse 1 of Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now today, like I said, we are looking at the heart of what makes this transformation possible, and so I want to reread to you the, just the first few words of verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. And that's as far as we're going to get today. And you're thinking, oh man, she was not kidding about digesting this passage slowly. Twelve words. We are going to cover twelve words this morning. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So first, we're going to start with this word, therefore. That's a great clue to us that it'll be very important for us to understand Romans 12 in the context of the book of Romans as a whole. The word, therefore, tells us that everything that Paul is about to say hinges on what he just finished saying. So let's take a few minutes and get a better understanding of the context of Romans 12 within the book of Romans. The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. And Paul opens the whole letter by introducing himself as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And he says in Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, when I read that verse, I tend to think, that's kind of weird that you'd say that like that, Paul, like first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It sounds like preferential language, like the Jews get first dibs and then everybody else gets leftovers. But what Paul is doing is actually unifying two pretty divided groups of people. So here's some extra context for the book of Romans. I think it's important for us to understand the climate into which Paul is writing. We know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time, and it was made up of a blend of Jewish followers of Jesus 
and Gentile or non-Jewish followers of Jesus. And that was true of most of the early Christian churches, but the church in Rome had experienced something unique. In the year 41 AD, the emperor Claudius came into power in Rome, and shortly after he came into power, he exiled all the Jews from Rome. And so Jews that were part of these Christian communities had to leave Rome completely, and it wasn't until several years later that they were allowed by Claudius to return to Rome. And so as you can imagine, these Jewish Christians, these Jewish followers of Jesus, left their churches and came back years later and found them very non-Jewish. And so some debates broke out. And by the time Paul is writing Romans in 58 AD, the Roman Christian church was pretty divided. People were arguing about how best to follow Jesus. They argued about whether non-Jewish or Gentile believers should honor the Sabbath, whether they should be circumcised, whether they should eat kosher, whether they should follow the traditional Jewish laws. And so while they're tangled in these debates and discussions about rules and regulations, those are the circumstances into which Paul is writing this letter to the Romans. And Paul's goal throughout the book of Romans is essentially to write out his clearest, most full explanation of the gospel. That's the good news that we believe of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so I know we're going to be covering a lot of ground today, and I just want to encourage you, as we're going through, take just jot down the verses that I mentioned so that this week you can go back through and reread them for yourself because we are covering a lot of ground in Romans today. So in Romans chapters 1 through 3, Paul starts by pushing on this idea, this tendency that we have as humans, I don't know if you struggle with this, I know I do, to, to tend to think that we are good people and that other people are bad people. Have you ever noticed that when someone else makes a mistake, we jump to the worst conclusion about them? But if we make the exact same mistake in our own lives, we find a way to excuse our behavior. See, I do this. If someone cuts me off in traffic, I immediately jump to the conclusion that they are the biggest jerk in the history of the world. They just cut me off. But if I cut someone off, which I never do, but if I did... I would immediately start to either one, explain away my behavior. Well, I have a van full of cranky kids. I was distracted. I never would have done that, of course, if I had known. Or two, and this is even more masterful in my opinion, I somehow find a way to blame my behavior on the other person. Well, I never would have cut that person off if they hadn't been in my blind spot. And you know why they were in my blind spot? Because they're the biggest jerk in the history of the world. See, it is all too easy for me to believe the best about myself and to believe the worst about other people. The problem is, and Paul is pushing hard on this idea, that we are all profoundly bad judges of character because we are so, so biased. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And he's right. We don't even honestly hold ourselves to the same rules and standards that we hold other people to. And then Paul says this really tough statement in chapter 3, verse 23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Now, if you are newer to church, that word sin probably makes your stomach turn because you're thinking, ugh, Christians, talking about sin again. And maybe it makes your stomach turn because you've been around people, maybe Christians who have fallen into this trap of thinking they're the good people that have it all figured out and other people, maybe you, maybe people you know, are the bad people. But what Paul is saying here with boldness is that the foundation of the good news of the gospel is the uncomfortable truth that we are all broken. We have all sinned. Then he makes that truth inescapably clear just a few verses earlier in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And those verses are hard for me to read. I don't like that at all. No one who does good, not even one. See, I don't like that phrase because I tend to think of myself as a pretty good person. In our American society, we have our picture of Lady Justice, and she's blindfolded, and she has the scales, and we want to know, like, what's the verdict, innocent or guilty, good or bad? And Paul is saying there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. See, the truth is none of us can be good enough to earn right standing with God. None of us can earn our way into God's favor. But that's a hard truth for us to accept, and I believe it's hard to accept because of the way we view our lives. See, we love phrases like, you get what you pay for, and the early bird gets the worm, and no pain, no gain. And I know those phrases well because they're rules that I live by. I want to work for what I earn. I like to win. I insist on my rights. We say we want people to get what they deserve. But the reality is that we are all trapped by the power of sin and in need of rescue. And Paul says that what we deserve ultimately is separation from God forever. He says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin, the consequence, the penalty of sin is death. Now you might think, wow, that is a really depressing way to start off this semester and this series, Jess, but I believe it's important for us to really grasp that truth because here's the good news that follows it. The rest of verse 23 says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news of the gospel is that it's a gift. It's a gift. And I think we all want some degree of transformation in our lives And I believe most of us would say we're pretty good people. We're probably high achievers. We want to work hard to get good things in our lives. But Paul is saying, wait, 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 wait. Before you move forward, you need to understand that the thing that makes transformation possible in our lives is a gift. It's a gift. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... Everything we are going to talk about this semester, everything we are going to learn this semester needs to flow from a deep understanding of his mercy. Years ago, author Philip Yancey, um, he's the author of a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. I highly recommend it. He wrote an article in Christianity Today titled The Atrocious Mathematics of the Gospel. And it was sort of a a tongue-in-cheek article that highlighted some of the really mysterious and confusing math in a lot of the parables of Jesus. And he shares that 
to get us to really understand and remember how truly lavish the nature of God's love for us is. See, Jesus tells a story of a shepherd leaving his flock of 99 sheep so that he can find just one. He tells the story of a man who owed more than he could ever pay back, millions and millions and millions of dollars, and his debt is paid off in an instant as a gift, and he can go free. And then in possibly the most confusing, mathematically, parable of Jesus, he tells the story of a landowner, a farmer, who hires some men to work in his field. And he goes out in the morning, and he hires some men, and he tells them, I will pay you a day's wages. But then he goes back out and he hires more men mid-morning, and then another group at noon, and then another group in the afternoon, and another group even still at the end of the day, dinner time. And then at the end of the day, he brings them all together, and everyone seems totally fine with the arrangement until he pays them all the same. He pays them all a day's wages. And so the people who are hired first start to complain, and I totally understand why they would. I feel like I would too. They say, that's not fair. And the farmer says to them, you were paid exactly what I promised you'd be paid. Why are you envious that I am so generous. And my response is, why, Jesus? Why would I be envious? Because it's not fair. It's bad math. And that is why the gospel is so scandalous. It bucks against our mathematical view of the world, that we do good things and we earn good things. And if we do bad things, we earn bad things. And what's so interesting to me is that for me and most Christians who read that parable, I identify most with the man who worked all day. And what Jesus is saying is you're all the people hired at the end of the day. You're all given a gift that you don't deserve. You could never work hard enough to earn the gift that I'm giving you. Jesus is saying, you're right. It's not fair. And the fact that it's not fair is actually the best news in the history of the world because it's mercy. If we got what was fair, we'd be separated from God forever. To quote Philip Yancey, He says, Jesus' story makes no economic sense, and that was his intent. He was giving us a parable about grace, which cannot be calculated like a day's wages. Grace is not about finishing last or first. It's about not counting. We receive grace as a gift from God, not as something we toil to earn. You cannot earn it. You can't. The problem is I see the whole world that way. That's how I view my life. And so my soul fights against that idea every single day. Have you ever been shown mercy by someone else? As I mentioned before, I'm an amazing driver. One of the best, honestly. Um, And if I get into any sort of sticky traffic situation, it is almost definitely the other person's fault. And I take probably way too much pride in the fact that I've only ever been pulled over just a couple times in my life, and I have never gotten a ticket. Everybody hates that person who brags about that stuff, but that's me, and I'm very proud of it. I'm a good driver. But one of the few times that I did get pulled over, I was definitely speeding. I knew that I was speeding. I was driving in Virginia on a road trip. I know everybody groans because everybody knows Virginia's traffic laws are really intense. And we had a hard deadline to get where we were going in North Carolina. And I had already forgotten something really important, so had to drive back home and take care of that and then get back on the road. So I was making up for lost time. And I was 
speeding and I knew I was speeding and I got pulled over and the officer asked for my license and registration and he took them and got back in his car and then you have to sit in that horrible side of the road limbo where you're wondering what's the verdict going to be? How big is the ticket going to be? How many points am I going to get on my license? And it was Virginia, as I said, so I was bracing myself for the worse. But he came back to the car and he handed me my license and registration and along with them, he dumped a heaping ton of mercy in my lap and he said, you need to slow down and be more careful, consider this a warning. And I could have exploded from the gratitude that I felt. No ticket, no points on my license, clean driving record continues. And so I drove off as responsibly and carefully as I possibly could. And as I said, I was so grateful that I could have exploded, but then something interesting started to happen in my mind. As I drove away, I gradually drifted from the feeling of being overwhelmed with gratitude to trying to find a connection between my verdict of innocent and my own good behavior. See, I started to reason that, well, he probably pulled out my license and saw that I've never had a ticket. I'm clearly a very responsible driver and a wonderful citizen of this country, and I deserve to be let off. And I don't know why he chose to give me mercy that day, but I think it's interesting that my response so quickly goes from gratitude to trying to figure out what I did to deserve the mercy that I received. And when we do that with other people or with God, it ceases to be mercy. I'm trying to take mercy and turn it into wages. And I think we all do this because I think we're hardwired to believe that you get what you pay for. And so our brains work over time to try to put the pieces together. And here is what the Apostle Paul is saying right up front to us today. You are going to be tempted to try to do the things in this chapter because you want to be a good person or you want to be a good Christian, or you're a high achiever, and you love to-do lists and boxes to check. But we need to return again and again and again throughout this semester to the truth that we cannot earn God's approval. It's a gift. It's a gift. And the good news of the gospel is that God upheld justice by paying our debt for us. Our bill is paid in full. Here's how Paul says it in Romans 4, starting in verse 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And then he quotes King David in Psalm 32, King David, a man who knew a lot about the mercy of God. In verse 7, he quotes him and says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. You cannot earn it. It's a gift, period. But we want to work for it. We want to earn it, but we can't. Grace is scandalous. Here's how Philip Yancey says it. If I care to listen, I hear a loud whisper from the gospel that I did not get what I deserved. I deserved punishment and got forgiveness. I deserved wrath and got love. 
I deserved debtor's prison and instead got a clean credit history. I deserved stern lectures and crawl on your knees repentance. Instead, I got a banquet spread for me. And I believe that's what God wants for us this semester. He wants to invite us to his banqueting table. He wants to show us how life is meant to be lived. He wants to give us the life that is the after photo of the transformation that we can experience in Christ. But we are going to have to resist the urge to look at this passage as though it's how to be a Christian in four easy steps or what God wants for me, a 10-point plan. Paul is reminding our hearts right from the start, transformation is possible because of one thing and one thing only, the mercy of God shown to us through Jesus Christ. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And no one understood those words, I think, better than the Apostle Paul. See, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the words that we're going to study this semester, experienced one of the most dramatic transformations in the Bible. Before Paul met Jesus, he didn't just think he was a good person. He thought he was the best person on the planet. In Jewish culture, the people who knew the law the best and obeyed it most carefully were admired and revered, and Paul was one of those guys. He took a lot of pride in his knowledge of the law and his adherence to the law. He worked hard to do all the things that he deemed were on the good list and none of the things that were on the bad list. So after Jesus' ministry on earth, after his death and resurrection, God began to grow the church through the disciples. The church was exploding everywhere, and the Jews, especially the Pharisees, did not like that. And so the Apostle Paul, doing what he thought was the best thing he could possibly do for God, started persecuting Christians, having them beaten or put in jail or even killed. But one day, everything changed for Paul because he was going about his business. He was living what he considered to be the best life possible, but he came face to face with the resurrected Jesus, and he was knocked literally, physically blind with the harsh light of holiness that revealed all of his corrupt motives, all of his pride, all of his confusion about who God really is, all of his selfishness and all of his mistakes, and he realized in that moment that at his core, he too was a sinner in need of rescue. And he received God's mercy, and it changed him forever. His transformation was so dramatic that he gave his life to the mission of telling the world about who Jesus is and what he has done. He traveled all around Europe and the Middle East, preaching the good news about Jesus, planting churches, and then writing letters to those churches as he continued to travel. Paul was transformed by mercy. And listen to what he wrote to a young man named Timothy that he was mentoring in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, many of you in, that, in this room have had that experience with Jesus. You had that experience where he illuminated 
your heart and you realize I am broken, I need rescue, I need a savior, and you turn to God for his mercy and receive that gift of his grace. You acknowledge, I can't do this on my own. I need a savior. Jesus, save me. And some of you in this room, I believe, are yet to have that experience with Jesus. You might still be trying to figure out what you need to do to become the person that God accepts. I have to tell you, that is not how the gospel works. There is nothing you can do, nothing to earn God's acceptance. He offers it to you freely as a gift. And that is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus paid our bill for us. He took our punishment on himself. He experienced physical death and spiritual death separated from his father. And then he rose from the dead, offering us the same resurrection, offering us both life here and now and life for eternity with him after we die. And when we fully realize our need for that grace and we receive that mercy that he offers us through Jesus, our only response is worship. It's worship. It's an overflowing of that gratitude that will transform every aspect of our lives. And so next week, we're going to talk about what that worship looks like as it flows from our receipt of that mercy. But today, we need to reflect on just these first 12 words. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... Because all that we are going to learn this semester must be viewed through the lens of God's undeserved gift of mercy in our lives. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to have some group discussion time together. God, thank you for your mercy in our lives. Thank you that you, you saw us, you knew that we needed rescuing, and you sent your son Jesus to pay the debt that we owed, and to offer us life both now and for eternity. We are so grateful. God, help us to set aside our tendencies to want to work hard to be a good person and to just do good things for the sake of doing good things and to instead reflect on your mercy in our lives because we know that it's only by that mercy that real transformation is possible. So help us to do that. Now, God, and throughout the rest of this week, to prepare our hearts to consider how we can best worship you with our lives moving forward. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.